Hi everyone, I'm Alex, and uh, my co-host Trey could not be with us today, so it'll just be me and our guest Jody. Uh, Jody is a brain surgery survivor who, after having some surgery done on his amygdala, has had some interesting uh, side effects to his surgery, which include a loss of some sort of like more primal senses of fear. So it should be interesting to uh, talk to him and see how his life has changed uh, since his surgery. Hello. Hey there, Jody. Can you hear me? Yeah. So to kick things off, uh, we'll just start off with you introducing yourself and uh, just sort of your life and your background as much as you're comfortable sharing uh, that led up to this surgery. Well, that's a long story if we want to go over my life. I have like a list. Generally like to bullet point the like uh, tragic history of Jody Smith. I'm currently in my, uh, where in the apartment I was literally born in. I was born 20 feet that way and in the central New York City. And I was, I don't know, had an interesting upbringing. My dad died when I was 13, brother died when I was 17, hepatitis and cancer, all sorts of random stuff. Lots of death in my family. Mm. And some might link that to why I was especially scared of death. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't feel a direct connection, but there's an, there's an intuitive connection there. And then, I don't know, kind of messed around with my life, became, tried to become a pilot. Uh, I dropped out of college to try to become a pilot. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that being a professional pilot sucks, I went back to college. I got uh, <laughs> What sucked about it? Just boring? Um, it costs a lot of money to become a pilot and then you don't get paid very much for the first like five, 10 years. And the job during that time isn't good or fun. And I also, I like flying airplanes. I don't like pressing buttons and like watching the clouds go by. Right. So it's kind of like, I realized I developed a passion for motorcycles. So I'm going to become a bus driver. No, that's kind of the thing that I didn't really think about at 19 thinking I'm going to do what I love and never, never work a day in my life. I was totally wrong. Um, and, uh, luckily turned away from that, started going to school for computer science and building my own airplane. And about 80% of the way through it, I had my first seizure. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Um, so it's interesting. I had, uh, six months of having seizures when I didn't know I was having seizures. The feeling was, um, I can describe the sensation using context that weren't included. And in. so imagine you're about to walk out the door. You just look at, oh, did I forget my keys? Oh, that's sort of like, is something wrong feeling a little bit like if you were an animal, your ears would go up. Um, right. Sort of that nagging, maybe uh, semi-conscious feeling of like, eh, something's wrong. Yeah. And then the feeling that comes up with like finding out something's really wrong as in like, Oh man, um, I just found out my grandma died or I just found out I have some disease, something bad just happened. Those two emotions accompanied by like that sort of fight or flight senses are tuned. I'm like something around me. Uh, percussive noises would be especially powerful, almost like the sound of something threatening is nearby. I would, I wasn't actually scared. This would happen while I was driving and I'd just be like, weird, I'm feeling this way. It must be anxiety. I'm drinking too much coffee, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, six months of those and I have a really big seizure where I still don't convulse, but I have a 20 minute gap in memory while my brain was having a seizure where I just walked around aimlessly and some like I I started stumbling and eventually a, n- a neighbor was like called the cops. Th- it was my grandma's neighbor thinking there's some junk guy in her backyard. Yeah. EM- but EMTs show up and a week later diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm, okay. Yeah. W- when you're describing these fight or flight responses um, and you, uh, think that possibly it is anxiety is it similar to like a panic attack yes it's actually um if i had gone to the doctor with those first sets of symptoms a neuropsychiatrist would say you're having a panic attack 90 percent of the time the series of sensations i have are panic attacks um it's because it's activating the same part of the brain i just happen to have really small seizures right where panic attacks are in the brain as well, where the activity of a panic attack is Mm -hmm. activating the same pathways. Yeah, I got you. I mean, you know, I've never experienced a seizure, but I had my first uh, true panic attack about a year ago. And it's one of the freakiest sensations of 
this this fight or flight uh and just this like super tight feeling like i thought maybe i was having a heart attack mm-hmm. um but yeah if those are similar and i've heard seizures described as sort of electrical storms in your brain uh is that true i'm not really sure of like the technical description of a seizure um uh, so consciousness in the brain works in a very set of organized activity every pattern represents like if you have activity in this part of your brain it's because you're seeing something that way if you have activity here because you're recognizing something you see but you know whereas seizures just chaotic and it depends on the size of the seizure some could definitely like it's you could say that your brain's always an electrical storm but it's a matter of how organized it is and an important part of the seizure is neurons are supposed to be able to decide to stop firing the seizure it just starts just keeps firing and doesn't stop and that causes actually over time that causes damage to the neurons themselves but yeah it's a a storm isn't too wrong if you right. if, yeah it's or it's not wrong at all it's <laughs> it's just a matter of like how different it is than the regular storm we have in our brain right that's a fair point yeah you're definitely right that there is a continuous uh there's something going on in the brain well so after this first uh incident happens where you have this 20 minute uh gap in your memory uh what ensued after that um so i was taken to a hospital that didn't have the proper machinery to, they didn't have an MRI or anything to check what's going on, but they were able to CAT scan me and say, it wasn't a stroke. Yay. Good job. Nice. Um, but a week later I go to a hospital that does have that stuff. And they asked me if I can, uh, some doctor had implied that those little panic attack moments are probably seizures. And I so they asked, can you demonstrate a seizure? And I was like, yeah. Um, I knew that sleep deprivation would trigger those. So I was spending three days in the hospital bed. They told me to trigger a seizure. I said, okay. So I turn on Skrillex and take a, like a drink of five hour energy oh. stay all night, black, like literally with headphones on trying to give myself a seizure and it worked. I was able to give myself a cut, like a dozen of those little ones over that three days. Oh, wow. And uh, they were, com- they were very confident that they were seizures diagnosed me with epilepsy and said, take this medication. Hopefully we'll control it. And then from there, I tried about four different medications. Maybe technically I'm on my fifth now. And they, none of them worked all the way. Like they, I went from having three seizures a day to having three a week. Mm. And um, they were looking for none a year, like zero. So even though that felt like progress to me, it was still going to like potentially kill me, but definitely get worse over time. So they made the call since it was a very small focus to cut it out. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of uh, premonition that these are coming? Like, I, I know I had a professor that uh, has, uh, she has epilepsy and she fear, she feels these sort of auras when these incidents are about to happen. Does that happen for you or is it totally uh, out of the blue? Well, what those auras are, are actually seizures that are the before it becomes big i was basically just having the premonitions the auras so the whole my whole experience other than that one 20 minute one was the aura um Mm. i was lucky not to have more generalized seizures i never convulsed i only lost awareness the one time never completely went you know out Mm. just the gap in memory and some discoordinated movement right and so when did the surgical procedure happen in relation to these incidents? Was that later down the road or was that shortly after these medications weren't cutting it for you? They gave the medications about a year. And so it was like July 2016 was my diagnosis. And then by February 2018, I was going, I was my appointment for brain surgery. So they went quickly because of like the, it's not, every not every epileptic has such a convenient place to cut out if i'd had seizures in my frontal lobe left temporal lobe occipital lobe they would have been a lot more nervous because that cuts out daily functions whereas cutting out the right side if like really almost like cutting out half of a right temporal lobe no one would know that i'm missing 10 percent of my brain like it, i have to tell people um if they mm-hmm. want if i don't want them to know um and so, yeah, they were they were aggressive. They described like technically we could probably cut out like 
half of what we're cutting out, but you'll be fine. Let's take it out and make sure you don't have seizures. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I read uh, sort of your own risk analysis going in. I, I think yeah. you, you had written that, oh, you know, going in, you're, you're going to go under, you are basically definitely going to wake up and there's maybe like a 1% chance of uh, like hemorrhaging or, or oh, having yeah. some sort of str- something like that. Uh, so going in, were you, were you not really concerned with what was happening? Despite well, your fear of death. Right. Now I like I was so surprised that I wasn't scared and, and the moments leading up to it. I was pretty but I, I it was I describe it as the feeling of being on like a, a water slide and a log where they'll just you gotta hold on and that's what's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But leading up to it though, I was aware of like so much risk that I spent more money than I had taking my my then girlfriend and I to the Grand Canyon because I'd never been there. Went right. went there for a week, just loaded up a credit card, said I might not be able. Like I was aware that I might not be able to see coming out of it. Might not be ah. able to talk. Might not be able to walk. Um, so, in the one one percent was a pretty big chance. I was certainly nervous about it, but I was so confident in the decision. I think that's probably why I was, and I was confident in the surgeon. The surgeon himself was very well respected across multiple institutions. Yeah. I mean, that has to be a crazy time. I mean, even if there is a 1% chance of something happening, I mean, being the individual going into that situation, you can't get that out of your mind, you know, especially someone uh, who has anxious thoughts centered around uh, uh, death and whatnot. Yeah, I almost want to say that the reason I wasn't scared then was the same reason I wasn't scared jumping out of an airplane or all the other risky things that I did is because I made the decision. Mm. I think the control of being able to weigh the risks and knowing all the variables and making the decision, I wasn't as scared as like the idea that, okay, like you will inevitably die in three years, I'd be terrified. Or you will get that that is really what scared me. I wasn't scared of taking calculated risks back then. Right. Yeah. If you had one of those uh, magical death clock type right. websites so that that would tell you with certainty when you're going to die, you wouldn't go near that. Right. Yeah. I, I, well, I don't know if I would, I would probably go there, but I would still be terrified by it. Yeah. I'd do the just, same thing. <laughs> I would regret it, but I would have to look at it and I'd be like, uh, Although I think I would actually enjoy it because then I can take more risks, right? Like, <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah, it's like, well, then I am going to die. Well, I can do anything leading up to that. Well, so you've actually been uh, skydiving. I assume that's what you're doing, jumping out of the plane. Yeah, skydiving, hang gliding, bungee jumping, lots of risky behavior like um, that some people would be scared of that I would, you know, I'd look into the risks, be like, oh, one in two million jumps have an accident, but it's not generally with students. Why not? And I was building and flying an experimental airplane, like I mentioned, and I, I had been flying for a while by then. And some people who would like see a picture of the plane I was flying, like there's no cockpit, it's just open. And uh. it it's, looks like a Vespa with wings, basically. And it's, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it was, some people would not choose to go in that. And I very much enjoyed flying that more than the safer feeling planes. Um, not because I, it was more dangerous. It was, it was lighter and therefore the handling was more enjoyable for me. Being able to fly low and slow was my pleasure. Right. And wait, so all of this is pre-surgery? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So even before you sort of felt uh, this alleviation from some degree of fear, you were still taking these, these calculated risks? I, yeah, I would say uh, like there was never a point where I was fearful of taking calculated risks. Um, I was an adventure. I was always an adventurous person. I was never like um, it was this the fear of death, though. It's maybe not the uh, let me describe how extreme it was like I could be in math class thinking, all right, so x equals two. I'm going to die one day I uh, equals seven i'm gonna die one day Mm -hmm. and i would i would be really really upset about it like for a whole day and i would know like like i would i would know that it wasn't logical for me to think that and i'd be frustrated with myself but still like thinking maybe if i just like live to be like 120 i'll make it till there's like some sort of longevity drugs that'll keep me alive forever (laughs) yeah it's possible you could live uh 
to a point where we have immortality to where we could uh, put our consciousness in new bodies or, I don't know, maybe the uh, expansion of the universe reverts and you just, you kind of exist forever. You just rewind and you're born again. I would try to rationalize all of those things. I'd go through every option and then I'd find ways to like get myself to not like it. I was like, okay, so what if I, like I had a plan, okay, I'll get eaten by a single other animal and then I'll be a part of that animal. But I was like, ah, well, no, I don't like rearranging my consciousness doesn't mean that I'm me again. It's like, okay, so there's the Black Mirror episode where you put your consciousness in like a digital form. I was like, that's not me. That's just a copy of my cuss. Not me. Right. It's a copy of me. That doesn't count in the whole. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really understand uh, why this sort of crisis, this, uh, this issue revolving around your consciousness, your identity, I could understand why that would become sort of worsened by having this procedure where a part of you is essentially removed. Um, a, a part of you that some people uh, conclude is you, or maybe is just a major part of you. Uh, I mean, was that something you struggled with after this surgery? Funny that you would say it struggled with it. I definitely like spoke. I, I So not one week after surgery, I had a little epiphany where it was like, well, so, I mean, uh, going into it, I was definitely thinking about, am I going to still be me? How, like, if I'm, if I'm my brain, am I going to still be me? Coming out of it, I was like, well, why is, why, what, what, uh, who am I? And the answer is not Jean Valjean, but like, it's, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, so the, no matter what the answer was, I came to the conclusion that the, that whatever it is doesn't change when I die it's like and when like I go to sleep I wake up there's a gap in consciousness I cut out my brain I still feel like me so like was that is that little version of is that little piece of my brain me I actually have um a separate piece of my brain uh that's cut out from the rest of the brain but still being fed like glucose and blood so it's still alive so i call it alcatraz because it's the bad part of the brain that's separate from the rest oh i got you wait so where is alcatraz located is that so it's still is it still inside of your head or is it somewhere else yeah, so they cut out one big piece. That's not Alcatraz. They threw that out. Or they did scientific studies. They, you know, gave it some, they got to electrocute it back on my behalf. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Alcatraz is inside my brain still. It was a part they were intending to cut out, but it was very, very nestled into blood vessels. And they were like, well, it's cut away from the rest of the brain. So we'll leave it in let's not cause a hemorrhage. So I have a little second brain going on that receives no sensory input, but it's so it's oh. technically in a coma as he put it, but like it's there. And it's like, wow. is, that, is that having dreams? Is that having thoughts? Is, uh, <laughs> that is, that's a very interesting, I don't quite want to call it a, a dilemma, but just a aspect of your life that that definitely cuts into sort of the core question. Uh, I'm not sure. Have you heard of like the hard problem of consciousness uh, just as essentially one of the biggest philosophical and it definitely has a lot to do with science. It's a, also a very uh, scientific question is just sort of like, what is consciousness itself? Uh, materialists would uh, believe that, you know, we're, we're purely biological. We're just uh, these elect- electric storms, as we call them, composes the human experience. And there are people that believe that like the human spirit or consciousness is somehow external or like additional do you have any sort of angle on that very much now that's actually the insight that i'm really glad to have because if i really that was the epiphany i had within a week or two of coming out of brain surgery because i was able to sort of think i i guess i'll trace back my thought process i wrote about two thousand words on it but i just watching some random show that references life starts with a single cell something i'm like okay sure that's happened ancient ancient times first cell in the in the world and right. we're all descendants of the single cell sure when did that develop an individual consciousness i started go- traveling through a problem that lo- lots of questions that have been asked many times but what i couldn't come to the conclusion is what makes me different than salt dissolving in water if i'm going to be like a hard materialist like i was before mm-hmm. brain surgery like yeah when i die I die it's black it's forever there's nothingness no experience and it's like, okay, but like, if I'm 
just equivalent to a complex version of salt dissolving in water, then when I die, that doesn't change. Like, where's the, where am I, where's my death point? Because they just cut out a part of my brain and I'm still me. All right. So, and when like, we're going to call Jody's dead when the electricity stops in my brain. What if like, if I were able to take out my memories, put them in your brain, take your memories, put them in mine, who's who? Right. Um, I only really know that I'm me because I remember being me yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a, yeah, it was a thought point. of like, okay, so if I'm going to run out of material, okay, so maybe if I'm salt dissolving in water, sure, I don't know the answer, but then when I die, it doesn't change. I'm still salt dissolving in water. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm a spirit, then I'm a spirit. Like, then I don't know the rules for that. I tried to get myself scared by thinking, well, yeah, but my spirit dies when I die. It's like, okay, I'm, you know, that's a pessimistic view. But the idea is that I'm more willing to believe that I have something more interesting than salt dissolving in water that's guiding me. And an important part of that is when I started having seizures, it was difficult to like feel like I'm myself. And let me describe that. So mm. imagine an Olympic track runner gets into like an accident and now they're quadriplegic. Right. And it's like, oh, I'm this incredible athlete stuck in a broken body. And they're just, and a lot of people can imagine this like head stuck in a broken body. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. But it happens. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. I've known people yeah. that they've gotten into uh, terrible car wrecks. And sort of the worst aspect of it is you know, they end up with um, some intense debilitation, like uh, debility. But I mean, they remember what they were able to do and they have that sense of loss. Of you know, right. I, I I was capable of this, but now unfortunately, like this is the boat I'm in. Yeah, right. And that's exactly what happened after I had my first set of seizures. I went from someone who never needed a calendar, never needed to write any, like almost didn't need to write anything down. Always mm. had really really sharp memory, and I was doing very well in school without really trying. All of a sudden, I'm forgetting that I even have tests on certain days and cutting class because I always did just whatever. I'll take the test, get a hundred but I forgot there was a test. And then I'm having trouble remembering things that people just said to me. And I'm, and I'm feeling like, an, uh, like a person inside a broken brain. This idea that this brain is this instrument that I'm trying to work much like the, we imagine the brain controlling the body, this puppeteer of the body that's the brain. I'm trying to puppeteer my brain and it's broken. Right. So again, it kind of, it, that gave me a separation of the self and the brain and to some degree, because I identified with the abilities and personality traits that I was starting to lose or change. It's kind of, when I tell people about this, I ask them like, what's the smallest thing, what's the smallest aspect of who you are as a person that could change and that would mean that you're not you anymore? Right. If you woke up tomorrow and you hated something that you love right now, would that mean that you're not you? If you woke up tomorrow and all of a sudden you're really like mean to people and you're, is that when, like, what would I have to change in your bet in your head to make you not you anymore? Right. And that's, it's interesting because a lot of it sounds very theoretical, but I feel like in this day and age, it's, it's really not because we're able to sort of dissect and divvy up uh, human beings in ways that we never really happened in the past things like you know uh the heart was once considered sort of the source of human animacy but i mean you can have heart transplants now yeah. you can lose that some people think that we can even maybe do full-on head transplants at some yeah. point in the future uh if that's true i mean your brain seems pretty important to who you are your face you know it, it's interesting and I think it's it's very relevant. I don't think it's it's a bunch of like silly thought experiments to be posing to people. It's like, you know, what are you? And no one really knows. No one knows. Right. And I think what that really calls to the ship of Theseus, which I assume you're familiar with. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was talking about this to my girlfriend just the other day. It's like, okay, so I took out my right temporal lobe. I feel fine. Other people take out other parts. They feel fine. So if we just kept swapping, when does one person become the other? Um, and it's like, okay, a lot of it's in the prefrontal cortex. A lot of what makes people people are in the unique parts of our brain that are especially developed. But it's kind of curious, like, okay, now we're saying that like we as a person exist right here. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's the uh, neuropsychiatrist friend of mine talks about how like um, there are certain people who grow up with like very rigid like authoritarian ideologies and they get an injury in the frontal lobe or something and and they like suddenly they're a socialist mm. <laughs> like that that's a pretty big part of the someone's personality um that was able to be changed with the brain injury <laughs> mm-hmm. and those kinds of things happen in the other direction more more often where someone who was a relatively normal person becomes especially aggressive after a brain injury did not happen to me <laughs> yeah 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 but I, I guess after that surgery happens it would be hard to discount the brain as being sort of the bedrock of of experience i am curious you said that there is a show you watched that referenced uh, a single cell uh sort of perpetuating light was that annihilation i think so holy okay. shit yeah you remembered it yeah yeah okay. that's the one with the invisible stuff that they walk into and they're trying to talk to people right yeah the letters and it turns out yeah oh so that one the one where there's like the levitating ink splotches yeah that that one is called arrival oh okay that one then yes right okay okay interesting wow glad that you were able i haven't forgotten that name and i keep thinking i'll look it up but i never do yeah well it's really bizarre i could have sworn that i had read you referenced that and then i tried to find it and i couldn't so i was like that's weird so well you got it arrival yeah the levitating ink splotches Mm. yeah that one references life starting as a single cell and i saw that less than a week after brain surgery so i was like yeah, Not something new to me, something I had considered got my own core knowledge since third grade. But like, mm-hmm. <laughs> some right. reason seeing that triggered the thought of like, why? Actually, an important thing that I didn't bring up is like, I'm this collection of individual cells. Um, what makes me different than all cells as a single entity? Like, mm-hmm. what makes my right? Am I like, if my right hand a separate being than my left foot any more than I'm a separate being than you? Like it's, it's, it, I couldn't find like solid, hard materialist answers to those questions. Like, um, a friend of mine referenced a book that I haven't read, but I like the title of it is when breath becomes air. Mm. And it's a good idea of like, where's the, where's the end of my being. Right. And the important thing for me, as I said, though, is not having the answers, but understanding that no matter the answer, the the question is really the compelling thought is like yeah yeah for sure and i i read some of your thoughts about that and i i think they're all very relevant like when the first uh cell sort of split apart you know where is there truly a boundary between us uh, and the rest of of being or whatever it is and that is one of the hard questions that as tempting as like hard materialism is it's it's a bit difficult because if everything really is just atoms, you know, what seems to make, what seems to make us animate and other things not that way. Right. Right. And our, I mean, as you probably, if you read my writing, geez, like our definition of like, it has to have a cell in order to be smart. It has to have a brain is like, it's, that is so arbitrary. And just like, given how little we understand of our own brains, where it's like, okay, these electrical patterns, that's probably the consciousness because when we break it, it doesn't work. It's like, okay, but that's, that's not really understanding at all. Uh, there's, a, there's a prominent neurosurgeon, I can't remember his name right now, but I like the quote that he deals with people with more severe traumatic brain injuries than I, and he talks about how the brain is the instrument by which the spirit controls the body. I found that an eloquent way of describing my experience, even though I don't necessarily identify as spirit being anything in particular um the idea that myself trying to control this broken brain instrument and really experiencing that (laughs) Mm -hmm. well have you ever heard of panpsychism by chance no never yeah you might be interested in it it's it's something i don't know if i buy it necessarily but it's a nice and interesting thought um can't really be proven but it basically posits uh that consciousness not intelligence necessarily but consciousness is a just fundamental element that like everything has the the complication with that is that if everything is conscious whatever that looks like it you know why is our consciousness you know seemingly divided from uh, you know a plank of woods right. consciousness yeah I mean, it's something what is what is a thing right yeah i guess that still assumes there's some level of organization that that 
creates a boundary so you know even if it's sort of like a a, a permeable boundary yeah uh, but that's something to to look into that that's along the lines of probably dualism and uh maybe a little bit along the lines of reincarnation a, a little bit yeah i I'd, I'd much like the idea that a rock has consciousness and then i cut the rock in half there's two rocks with two consciousnesses i don't know about that mm-hmm. like it's it's like we, we kind of have some sort of like if you stay solely within materialistic ideas, it's, it's it, you kind of have to assume there's one, like a lot of people have like, we're all one energy or whatever. And I, I'm not, I don't like that. I do like the, like, cause I do have this individuality to me. Right. Um, and if I were re- to be reshuffled, I wouldn't like, that's not me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, similarly, like if I woke up with your memories, uh, like, how would I know that I'm like what's going on at all? So I kind of define who I am based on my experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. Is this um I like to call that the temporal being. Um, my own little craft. Um just the summation of your experiences combined with whatever you want to call who you are. That's the self in the sense that if any of that were to significantly change, you wouldn't recognize yourself. So that's kind of who you are and there's no physical manifestation of it. It's just your sort of four dimensional trip through time. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I understand what you're saying. And I mean, you said you have, you had some of these uh, really impactful experiences shortly after surgery coming out of surgery. uh, What was it like for you, you know, mentally, physically, I know you said you felt sort of trapped uh, in a, in a mind or like with a brain that didn't quite feel like, what you were accustomed to yeah actually no that started before surgery um because the seizures were disrupting my brain so significantly that i identified as i still identify as a very smart person but i identified as like superbly capable of anything that my mind was put to and it never kind of met a challenge it couldn't overcome until after epilepsy i finally needed a tutor i was like not doing well in a class even though i was trying right um but the actually after surgery, what's interesting is like I I was struggling with actually some semblance of that fear of death. I brought myself all the way to the idea of like, okay, so if I reincarnate or if I end up with my current body to be immortal, eventually the universe is gonna either go uh, contract or expand and heat death, whatever. I'm still going to die one day. And I was still upset about that. But that was when I was on dexamethasone, famously uh, known for making Trump crazy uh, oh. while he was, he was taking it. Um, and I was like, I know what he feels right now is he's tweeting up a storm. I know that feeling. Uh-huh. Um, Just like racing thoughts, racing irrational thoughts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, it's kind of that manic up and down where right. there are moments where I was like literally a day after brain surgery, I was like, I can go for a marathon. Like I could run right now. I could run. Uh-huh. Oh, I feel so good. And then the next day I'm going to die. Yeah. And, then the, and even if I don't die, the universe is going to die. Cause then I'll die, 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 die. And, but like that all smoothed out over the next two weeks. And that's when I realized I wasn't afraid of things anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you you do identify with a loss of fear after your surgery? Um, yes, but it's hard to define. Like a lot of people say, like I'm afraid that someone will say like something like, "Oh, I'm I'm scared that I hurt you. I'm scared to say something." Um, it's a very particular, like animalistic self harm avoidance fear that is removed. Um, like an immediate and, danger thing, like a, a danger to yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one situation that I was in where I would have felt this when I was walking through a bad neighborhood and four guys or someone like calls over four guys and they surround me and they're like, what's up? And I've been through the Bronx before I've been mugged and got punched in it. That was in high school. But I normally I would have like been a little startled and make a take a stutter step. And the, the right decision in that situation is to keep moving. So I saw them coming and I was like, okay, keep moving. But like, I didn't feel any fear of these like four big guys that were like trying to be intimidating. And I, I was like congratulating myself for keeping cool. But it, like, <laughs> I was like, wait a mm-hmm. second. No, there wasn't a second. And like, 
leaning, you know, other situations where you might feel that just fight or flight feeling where someone almost hits you with a, their car. Right. Or, I was just uh, thinking about that, like yeah. a car coming at you as opposed to, oh, you know what? Maybe I, uh, it can be anything. Maybe, maybe I didn't say the right thing at the dinner party right. or something like that. Maybe the more social complex, uh, and maybe it's more like anxiety than fear really. Right. Right. hindsight hindsight's still a thing i can still like i still feel like oh man I, I screwed that up regret regret and like i'm able to have negative emotions towards worries like about the future but it's not quite the same as that person might kill me feeling it's mm-hmm. a very i call them i try to use say that they're different brands of feelings they're yeah. they're often interchanged but if someone really, if you really analyze it tightly, those are different feelings. And um, my experience, though, is it's odd. Um, that same part of the brain does speech inhibition. So that social anxiety, like I wouldn't have described myself as like anxious in social situations, but I was certainly, um, I wasn't especially t- uh, interested in talking to strangers um that like didn't yeah if they if they had no special thing to interest me i just wouldn't yeah uh, interact but now i'm just a lot more outgoing a lot more talkative a lot more interested in speaking to people i don't really care about Mm -hmm. um so like i was always a confident or no it wasn't always but leading up to the surgery i was a confident person interested in engaging but like removing speech inhibition really got me going. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Is there a, like an actual identifiable uh, aspect to it? Like within your physiology, like was there a part of your brain that was removed uh, that is like quote unquote, the center of, of this type of fear, this brand, this brand of fear. Yeah. um, So the right amygdala handles is primary driver of harm avoidance um and physical response to negative stimuli and speech inhibition um those are the three primary things as opposed to the left amygdala which is more of a thoughtful response to emotional stimuli and um theoretically you know if you think about the average like masculine guy gets angry and he punches a wall because he's something bad happened that's his right amygdala going crazy um never did that i always was a relatively um i i grew up relatively on the feminine side of the emotional spectrum in terms of like gender normative associations Mm -hmm. um so when i found out that the gender lateralization of the amygdala is males have males and conservatives have larger and more active right amygdala more focused on harm avoidance and physical responses Uh, and women and liberals have the opposite where they're more like more likely to have a thoughtful response and more likely to there's association with the left amygdala and empathy which i certainly experienced an increase in empathy oh it's on the it's on the left and right side Mm -hmm. correspondingly that conservatives feel that's funny yeah (laughs) literally left yeah yeah Uh, that's exactly right and if you think about you know, the liberals also have more active anterior cingulate cortex, which is uh, error avoidance, which I found fascinating because you have like error avoidance, political correctness, harm avoidance. Right. Like, I was just thinking that. Other yeah. way. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I guess I should go over the parts, what the parts that I removed, had removed and uh, what they did. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned the right amygdala also had the right hippocampus removed that just generally does episodic memory like uh, the and also just generally like facts this happened you were there I did this those very like um, I think they're called semantic memories but the the specific facts that actually are facts um, right uh, and both hippocampus store those memories but generally the side that it is on correlates to which hemispheres memories are there um so it's important because the right hemisphere's temporal lobe does facial recognition um and i had the front half cut out which doesn't 
do doesn't imply that I lost any particular thing. I guess I I I did lose some ability to recognize faces, some ability like very very slightly lowered ability to recognize faces and objects as quickly as someone who hadn't had surgery might. It's right. funny like if you see like um this happened actually <laughs> a few times where driving for whatever reason see something brown i think it's a rock it's a cow um or i looking for i think lots of people experience looking for something not recognizing it's right in front of you just happened a bit more after surgery (laughs) right yeah i was reading recently about there's there's definitely a a condition where uh and i i don't i'm not sure if this is specifically what you're experiencing but uh there is just physically in the brain a place uh, where we have uh, recognition of objects, basically. That's and, the right temporal lobe, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and some people, it, yeah. it's hard for me to like, you know, imagine, but I, I'm sure it's it, it totally makes sense when when thinking about the brain. Well, so people who have their entire right temporal lobe removed. So we're again, when I say right temporal lobe, talking about neurotypical right-handed person, generally have these associations. Left-handed people, it's generally reversed. Um, so right-handed person speaks out of their left temporal lobe and recognizes faces with their right temporal lobe. Um, so an important part of that is, um, cutting out the entire right temporal lobe. There are people who have done that and they can't recognize their parents, anyone until they like do something that identifies them. Like the, the left temporal lobe can kind of logically deduce who someone is. This is a person who is talking to me like this, looks about this tall with this hair and like, oh, this is... So I saw a really good example of the difference here. If you um, like imagine the outline of a butterfly with no image whatsoever, um, just the outline, kind of the, the left temporal lobe can just kind of figure out that that's a butterfly but um, just kind of in context, like if it's sitting on a leaf, especially like kind of put it together, the right is like butterfly instantly just doesn't need the logical thought of comparing it to other things instantly remembers. That's a thing. (laughs) Right. I've heard of, I think it's called Capgras syndrome where uh, uh, people, the, the will, they can't, quite recognize members they can recognize members of their family but they believe that there's some sort of like imposter uh but on like the phone or things like that they'll recognize this voice as being like the the respective voice of their family huh i'm i, I have never heard of i that. think <laughs> it's called capgrass syndrome capgrass syndrome is something to people listening but um but that that definitely does happen the the situation where like seeing the face doesn't trigger that associative response but just voice alone can convince these people that they're hearing uh their loved ones or their parents that now that is interesting because in the first time that um I saw my mom about after not seeing her for four days, shortly after brain surgery. And like, I didn't think she wasn't her when she showed up, but I, I was like, is that really like some, something that I should recognize instantly in a place she didn't like, but it was like the feeling of seeing someone with a drastically different hairstyle or someone you haven't seen in a while. I was like, Oh, that's you. Right. That feeling to someone I saw four days ago. And I could imagine if someone was a bit closer to like the schizophrenic side of things to be like, that's not really my mom. Is it? Mm -hmm. I could see that having had my experience, which is kind of crazy to me because that sounds super terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, at a sort of uh, bird's eye view I mean, this experience definitely sounds uh, very life-altering. Uh, but I mean, do you feel like it's a a net positive or a net negative force, or is it just sort of impossible to say one or the other? Um, well, obviously, glad I don't have seizures anymore. So that's obviously not positive reason I made the decision. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the obvious, I, th- I would say, removing the fear and the speech inhibition, net positive. Um, like the personality changes, I would, I, or the overall capability changes. If I could have my memory back, 
that would be great. I would love to have fantastic memory again. I've gotten into some trouble. I don't know if you saw what I wrote about that. Did you? Oh, no, not uh, specifically. What happened? Okay. Um, it was so with, I was dating a particularly jealous girl. Oh, no. And um, I missed, I, I was convinced that something I did with a girl that she was especially jealous of, I was convinced that I did that with my girlfriend at the time. Ooh. And, I, and I was like, no, no, we went to that park together. We went to that park together. I'm sure we did. And then, and then like, we, it was weird. We like, we broke up and whatever, like three times, but it's another time I thought I remembered doing something that I did like sexually with another girl. I remember oh. doing that with this jealous girl. And I was like, I said, like, remember when we did that? She's like, that wasn't with me. I was like, oh. oh man, like that never, like that is so far beyond, like I would remember not like before having epilepsy, I would remember the day that all of those things happened and what was said and what was said after, not like, forgetting who i was with the two girls look similar really similar but <laughs> like, but you yeah. would you would still know it you know without the surgery you would definitely know yeah and it's i really suspect the idea it's all it's very focused on who did what at the time and i suspect the right temporal lobe for that and not having that sort of encoding going on into the right hippocampus the easy pathway um oh and Side note, also the right amygdala plays, both amygdala play a role in the um, modulation of how powerful a memory should be. Hmm. So um, one way to make sure that, you, you remember things you care about, right? Like if you really care, you remember. Yeah. Um, that used to be true for me, but it really has been less true for me now. And it's been frustrating because when I meet someone new and I forget something important that they said, they think that I don't care about them as much as I do. Um, or something like that. And it's, that's, that's definitely life altering, but I, the other negatives are like beyond the memory problem. I certainly take the surgery. I would, I I highly recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's frustrating because there's like, and I think in a few years they'll be able to do this surgery without removing the hippocampus, but, um, which would have kept my memory a bit more intact, but yeah, I, I still think that overall I'm a better person now than I was going into surgery, but who's to say that it was necessarily the surgery that did that. A lot of people go through extreme experiences, come out, I don't know, more empathetic and more. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I get you. Are you still like jumping out of planes? Are you, are you doing uh, any crazier things now that you don't feel that uh, sort of primal like animalistic uh, fear of death? Um, I mean, again, I, I, I was always doing that. Um, right. I, I'm not capable. I'm not legally allowed to fly the airplanes that I used to fly. I'm still considering flying, but it seems like a bad choice, mm-hmm. uh, for my own well being. So like, I, I have no desire to be any more risky than I was. Um, if anything, I'm actually consciously more cautious about big like things because I'm a I I feel like I have a good thing going and I don't want to have a seizure. I don't like if I died tomorrow, what's the whole point of going through all this, right? I could have just not done any of the things that I did. So I'm still intently avoiding death about as much as I was before in terms of circumstance, but I am kind of treating myself a bit like a science experiment uh i'll lean over a cliff a little bit too much that i or that it would have bothered me before um i would say really the only presentation is in of of being more fearless i guess is that i actually have to and the opposite is happening where i'm like i'm not gonna take care of myself so i need to think more about these decisions that will probably hurt me mm-hmm. So yeah, if anything, I, yeah, I'm trying to overcorrect in the other direction in a lot of cases. Right. You're sort of fighting back against those changes that you've experienced. Right, right. It's almost like uh, the rest of my, if my uh, fear was a sort of balance and I'm just, now I don't have it. So it's like, oh, I might just walk off a cliff and not realize like, that's not real. That's an exaggeration. But the idea is like, I'll get myself into bad situations quite easily if I don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, I get you. 
Um, before we sort of wrap things up, you know, I know you don't want to become a, a pop culture icon, uh, uh-huh. but are there any sort of plugs that you want to give people uh, anything specifically? Is that, is that work uh, that you've written, is that going to be a book or something? That's oh, what man. I was wondering. It should yeah. be. It should be. You should go for it. <laughs> a lot of people tell me to write a book based on that. They're like, this is basically, this is the, this is the base play for a book, write a book on this. I feel it's funny. I, I don't have, I, a lot of people would say that I have a big ego and I'd probably agree. But the funny thing is that I feel like writing something about philosophy sounds a little bit too like, who am I to tell everyone that like how it is? I don't know. I, my opinion is that no one knows, but here's what works for me. Um, I'm tempted, but I don't think that's anytime soon. I've got enough on my plate. In terms of plugs, I mean, there's nothing that I'm doing that needs a plug. I could ask if uh, my buddies at the Brain Bar want a plug. They do a, um, they do organize events. Now they're on Zoom, but they used to be in New York City, and they will be once you know things are open again. The Brain Bar is like a series of salons that discuss interesting topics about the brain usually surrounding a theme there was just one yesterday um about is uh is kind of a little fun halloween it wasn't really spooky but it was kind of a fun halloween special where they go over they have a neuroscientist come on who is works with um actually dreams and was able to influence dreams using like smells and kind of target people into certain dreams. Hmm. And one of the things that I felt a lot of impact from that was um, if in one of his experiments, you're able to get someone to like learn something in the day, uh, like some facts, then they sleep and you quietly play the set of facts on a track. And the right. people who heard it while they were sleeping remember it better than the people who didn't. And I was like, this is learning in their sleep. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've heard that. And it, to me, it was always sort of a rumor because my brother in high school would say, uh, oh, you know, I, I've recorded this history book and I'm just going to play it while I sleep. Uh, I was like, I don't know about that, but that's fascinating. That's very interesting. Right. I would have thought that a not, if, if he wasn't a neuroscientist, I would have been like, yeah, okay, I see out Dexter's lab too. I'll let do fromage, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, uh, hey, if you ever uh, get to writing or publish something, let me know and we should definitely discuss it because, well, I mean, yes, it, it is you discussing philosophy, but I don't, I can't really think of anyone else who's closer to this sort of stuff i mean it's very relevant to you is what i'm saying i don't i don't i don't think it's pompous to be like oh you know here's my theory of the mind well you're living through something that truly makes you question the nature of the mind it's your life you know